0: of the things that that she wrote, and again, this is a collaborative book, uh, is she made a a statement that some executives used to think of procurement as the place you send staff away in order to never see them again. That's the opening uh, statement from Chapter 1, What is Procurement? Uh, Some of you out there may look at that and say, I recognize that immediately. Uh, Some may look at it and say, well, no, I have an active involvement, and what makes that statement interesting, by the way, is back in 2007, CPO Agenda Roundtable talked about the fact. That the, the vast majority of procurement uh, or executives uh, look at procurement has uh, been non-effective in terms of adding to the positive uh, uh, gains uh, in terms of uh, bottom-line results, in terms of influencing value and stock value of the corporation. And, in fact, many believe that the best, and this is from that 2007 survey, but it's it's progressed and still is in place today, where many believe that the best person to run a procurement department is not someone from procurement. Uh, So we're going to talk about that attitude of who is procurement, where, where exactly did we come from? What are our roots? Then we're going to touch on, has, has procurement finally come of age? And there's a couple of things we're going to mention in, the, in that regard. Uh, as you know, there's been some major breakthroughs with companies such as uh, uh, Toshiba, where the former head of supply chain uh, and purchasing was actually elevated the role of of CEO, head of a company. And and one of the key things we talk about is, is this an example that procurement is finally getting a seat at the table? And it's kind of an interesting point because what is the seat at a table and what does it actually mean? Does it mean that we're finally a credible voice? Uh, And if it is, then what do we have to do to make an exception the rule? And so we'll touch on that today. Then another area, and this was of particular interest uh, to, uh, to uh, IACCM, we were told, is are win-win collaborations really possible? You know, we've all heard the term win-win, and what's interesting about it is is it's almost become uh, a ubiquitous uh, uh, phrase that has lost all meaning everybody wants a win-win relationship, everyone talks about it, but is there actually tangible proof that such a win-win relationship exists? And immediately what comes to mind here is actually an article that Tim Cummins wrote that he talked about the fact of how when people come at the negotiating table, and he was talking about the higher-level executive, he said that when people are at the negotiating table, the stakeholders, they all lie to one another about what they can do, in what time frame they can do it, and, and, and how much it will cost. So, in other words, there seems to be a uh, uh, win the business first, worry about making it work uh, later type of approach that undermines the effectiveness of contracts. And so we're going to talk about what are win-win collaborations. We'll make reference to one of the more famous case studies, uh, which we do in the book by Kate Patasic about the rebuilding of that Minneapolis bridge that collapsed and how the, uh, the state's procurement professionals literally moved away from their traditional method of, of, of contracting, uh, looked at doing equal risk sharing, uh, looked at actually collaborating and working to build a bridge in, in a time frame that up until then had never been achieved and how they successfully achieved the outcome. And what's interesting is one would think based upon that success that it would automatically become a standard that would be scalable, yet it hasn't. And so we're going to talk about win-win collaborations from the standpoint of not only what it really means, but is it a scalable model that people can actually apply? And then finally, and again, I touched on this earlier, the media and procurement. Are we really covered? And, you know, there's been some challenging issues that have happened out there where, you know, we have – back in 2005, I remember in Inc. Magazine. Uh, talking about the fact that software initiatives uh, and and the predecessors to e-procurement initiatives uh, were not going very, very well and that there was no real reporting mechanisms to give a true picture as to where the industry was, who was succeeding and who wasn't succeeding. In a lot of cases, uh, it resided the fact is, is that no one wanted to admit after spending millions of dollars that their e-procurement initiative hadn't achieved the expected results. So there was this sort of silent elephant in the room. Well, now, of course, with the advent of the Internet, social media, uh, the, the introduction of cloud-based solutions, the changing and evolution of technology in which implementations are from months and years, Today, weeks and days, and and the cost effectiveness of solutions. You know, the, 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 the final analogy we talk about this is the emperor having no clothes. The old conception of understanding what is really going on in the industry and how it shapes our decisions, uh, that is starting to really inform and empower buyers, procurement professionals, supply chain people, uh, all the way up to the CPO in terms of how they can make the right decisions to achieve the right outcomes. So those are the four areas out of, of the, out of the nine that we're going to touch on today. Uh, so Mark, uh, I don't know if you have uh, Kelly on the line. You can tell my voice is starting to go. Uh, I have a bit of a cold, everyone, so sorry if I sound raspy. But uh, Mark, that's really a high-level idea of what we're going to be talking about today. I hope Mark's there. Hello. Oh, sorry, John. I was I was talking. I was on mute. So, uh, yes, thank you about that. Kelly, can you hear us, or can you hear John? Can you talk? All right. Looks like I'm still trying to get Kelly online. Um, See, now we need that musical interlude. Mark and I were kidding before the show. I have a radio show. I've done about 900 plus broadcasts. And no matter, and this is a great I'm point, muted. some executives used to think of procurement as a place you send staff away in order to never see them again. And I thought that was a brilliant way to open up the chapter. you want to elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So, and one of the things, and I, I love that quote, um, and I think one of the key changes that we're starting to see about who is actually making up the core of the field, and maybe more importantly, the future of the field, is this idea that, in the past, you were actually sent to procurement, or you might get shuffled to procurement. But these days, people that are either partway through their career or people who are early in their career are seeking procurement out. And they're seeking it out not because they see it as an easy, comfortable place, but because they are, they're ambitious and they see procurement as a way to further their goals. Um And so it's starting to force us to challenge all these new entrants and all this new energy and ambition. It's forcing us to challenge job title definitions and association requirements and the value they provide, as well as our expectations of things like analyst firms and solution providers. Um, So some of the questions that we ask about in this area sort of look at the role models or the thought leaders or the advice givers that we've had in the past, and we're looking at some of the things that those folks are actually going to have to change, or the solutions that are going to have to come in and replace them in order to meet these new needs as we move forward.
0: Okay, but you know what, here's an interesting thing, and we've talked about this many times in the book, Kelly, is the fact is, is that in the past, and, and I mentioned this, you know, five, six years ago, uh, as little time as that, whenever I'd speak to an audience, whether it was 500 people or 20 people, and I'd say, "Okay, how many of you chose to be in procurement? Raise your hand." If I saw one or two hands go up, that was a lot it was almost as if people fell into procurement because they felt a sense of responsibility or duty or opportunity was presenting itself. It's like the circumstances dictated the the, the, the entry into the profession. What I found interesting, and I call it the generation next uh, procurement professionals, they've chosen to actually be in this profession. And by choosing to be in this profession, it seems that they have a greater level of interest and demand to have a much larger impact beyond, uh, you know, uh, cost avoidance, the traditional parameters of success. And that, I think, is interesting on two fronts. And, and I want to pose this to you as a question, Kelly, and, and, and anyone in the audience, again, feel free to, you know, chime in with your comments, is the fact is, is that that not only challenges the profession itself and those existing people uh, who are in the profession in terms of their way of thinking, but in many instances, doesn't that challenge the very companies for whom these new pros work to rethink procurement itself? I mean, is, 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 so when you look at answering who is procurement, it's not a it's not a unilateral uh, self-examination. It's actually having a ripple effect throughout, uh, throughout the entire profession, isn't it? No, it is.
1: And I think in the past, the simple fact that even though it wasn't necessarily purposeful, they weren't being picked and chosen saying, okay, you're quiet enough or you're status quo enough or you're whatever enough. We're going to put you in procurement because that's what we want procurement to be. You sort of ended up with this, in some cases, ragtag, in other cases, just very different people in the profession. And so you had this this blend that unfortunately didn't necessarily work out to be a strength um one of the other quotes that i i love on this actually comes from charles dominic at at next level purchasing and he talks about how in the days of the past purchasing used to be something like the island of mystic toys you can think about that old rudolph the red-nosed reindeer christmas special where everybody's there and they all have something not quite healthy but maybe something a little bit different And I think it even dates back to the very earliest days. If you look a century ago, um, another one of the really fun stories that we uncovered as part of this is we looked at the story of what actually started ISM. So we think of it now as being, you know, another association like IACCM. You've got this big group of people. It's all procurement, four procurement, five procurement. But it was started by a sales guy. E.B. Hendricks was a sales guy at Thomas Net, and he recognized in the process of making his rounds how disconnected people in procurement world were. And he had this idea, if I can connect them to each other, sales for me is going to be a little bit more like shooting fish in a barrel. It's going to bring everybody together, make it a little bit easier for me. Um, and so in some ways, that hasn't changed. But we're starting to see the shift. And so when we talk about, who is procurement, we can look at an individual level and we can talk about boomers leaving and we can talk about millennials coming in. We can talk about higher level graduate degrees or more diverse backgrounds, but we're also looking at it collectively. And I think where in the past procurement collectively has been defined by default by the people that ended up there and sort of the stereotypes or or generalizations that other functions in the organization came away with, what you're getting now is all of these people who are choosing procurement, and they're saying, we're choosing procurement because, and it's very positive, that is all coming together to form a new collective identity, which is pushing from inside of procurement out. And so now it's the rest of the organization or suppliers starting to see us as we are determining ourselves because we've chosen to be there. Um, and, and that shift, I think it, it went from being a passive identity just sort of by default from the people who ended up in procurement to being a very active, we're getting to shape it ourselves. And then as we build up momentum, we can say, hey, so-and-so in finance or in operations or in marketing is really smart. Let's try to snag them and bring in their skills or their perspective, and we are going to continue to shape and evolve from inside what procurement looks like then going forward and how others outside actually see us.
0: Okay, now this is an interesting point, and let's talk about paving the way to that evolution. Uh, Could we call it evolution, Kelly?
1: I think so. We're talking about the coming of age.
0: Or a revolution. Some may call it a revolution, depending on your perspective, but here's the point. This is yeah. something that was raised by Kate Vitasik, and she talked about in her Forbes post regarding the interview that I did with her and, and another uh, gentleman, and you recall that interview, and she talked about the fact that real change will not happen until the dinosaurs are gone. And I want to add to this and then, then point this discussion because we talked about this in, in, in terms. And, by the way, listeners, this is very much how Kelly and I collaborated. So you're actually seeing the collaborative process on the book, I think it would be fair to say. But, but, but one of the things that, that, that's interesting about the dinosaurs – Robert Hanfield, who's a well-respected academic in in the field of supply chain, said that there is a definitive and definite chasm between procurement professionals of the past and the up-and-coming generation, so much so that this break with history was driven by his assessment that there is nothing tangible to be gained from procurement practices and methods of the past that will carry over into this next generation. So in, 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 I guess in, in, in light of those two factors, is this a, a dinosaur's having to die out, as Vitasic claims, before the evolution or revolution can take place, or is there going to be a certain amount of adaptability here? Uh, In terms of some of the the senior pros, and I mean, I fall into that group. You know, I've been around for for about 20-plus years. Uh, You know, is that going to be, uh, you know, something that has to take place? Does there have to be a definitive and definite break before these changes can take place?
1: Well, I think... You know, and and we talked a lot about Kate and her mention of the dinosaurs. It's it's kind of a a theme that continues to run through the book. Um, And one of the things I should actually mention, we haven't talked about it in a bit, but it's a very cool thing. Her discussion of the dinosaurs actually came from one of John's blog talk radio interviews. And we have the transcript. I know there's listening learners and there's visual learners. We actually have the transcript of that interview. In the back of the book, so we've pulled out quotes that are certainly embedded in our writing, but you can read the whole thing in its entirety to get the full context. And so I think it would be easy to think about, you know, you mentioned yourself, maybe. Like, would we look at you as a dinosaur? I don't think it's that simple. I don't think one old-school procurement person equates to one dinosaur. I think, in a way, the dinosaurs are more the roadblock that would prevent us from evolving. So a mindset, this idea that, I mean, yes, is knowledge power? Yes, of course it is. But the extent to which hoarding knowledge prevents us from being able to work productively with cross-functional teams, or prevents us from having a truly trusting collaborative supplier relationship, that notion of hoarding the knowledge needs to be let go of. And so that idea becomes a dinosaur. People who can't truly get past that idea have to kind of go the way of that of that dinosaur idea because theirs is not the future. I think for anybody who is interested or curious or willing or open to change, I think it doesn't matter if you've been in the field for one year or 10 years or 100 years. Um, if you're willing to look forward and be open and try new things, there is always going to be opportunity. And in some ways, and this gets to our, you know, we talk about the second generation of procurement professionals. So maybe somebody who's been in, I don't know, finance for 12 years and says, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to move the procurement. there is some value in people who have been around for a while and seen some things and learned some of the stuff, whether it's political things or just general business skills that are so valuable, then um, having them come into procurement. I don't think you have to be fresh out of college in order to not be a dinosaur. I just think you have to be open to new ideas and willing to try new things because without new ideas and new things, you can't get the new results that our organizations. Are really looking for
0: from us. Okay, so so here's the interesting point then, in terms of this discussion, there is it safe to say that there is a a a, a transformation that is taking place. That this transformation, while it'll be led by the new, and we'll call them again the generation next. Uh, excuse me, Pepsi for that. Uh, but uh, but that it doesn't automatically preclude those of us who have been in the business for a long time. In other words, our exclusion would be based upon our unwillingness to look beyond that with which we are most familiar and most comfortable. Do you know that? Does that make yeah. sense? And
1: I think I think that it does because I think the one thing that people with more experience have that younger, fresher people don't have that we talk about is also being critical is this idea of influence. You know, it's, it's one thing not to have rank. In, in a lot of cases, rank is something that only comes with time. It's only so fast you can increase your rank or get new rank. But influence is sort of operating as separate from time. It's this alternate idea. And while new people can actively work on building up their influence, if they can partner well with people, whether in procurement or otherwise, that have been around for a while, they can leverage that influence that already exists in other colleagues to maybe introduce or implement some of their ideas a little bit sooner.
0: All right. So so in essence, who is procurement? How would you answer that? How do we answer that? I'll let you first go and say it, and then I'll, I'll, I'll very much the way we dialogued in writing this book. Who is procurement?
1: So in my, my opinion, procurement is, Anyone that has a role relative to the effective management of spend in an organization, and I think it's a very broad definition, but I think it's empowering because it pulls in people who are literally sitting in chairs in procurement, but it also pulls in people in accounts payable. It pulls in distributed buyers throughout the organization that have a role to play. I think. In a way, we need to allow procurement the idea to sort of filter out into the organization. Um, I don't think that takes away from our identity. I think it builds it up. Um, so that would be that would be my perspective on it. How how would you want to walk away from this, John, defining procurement?
0: I think the, the, the paradox or irony is, is that even though a younger generation is coming in, like, you know, you have Thomas Net and, and whatnot with their top 30 under 30, I think it, it, it's the, the, the younger generation that is actually bringing in an, an, an evolution of credibility that is redefining who procurement is. And that, I think, is what's important about that. Who is procurement? Is, 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 is taking the shape based upon the realities of how the world is changing. And I don't think that that could have happened from the inside out. I think it has to happen from the outside in. And so, and I say it's an ironic paradox, is that usually it's the most experienced people within an industry that tend to shape the policies and the direction. But I think now what's happening is, is the outside coming in, uh, who is procurement, is the generation next people. They're the ones who are uh, having the greatest impact and greatest influence uh, in terms of where the industry is going. And thus, unlike any other time before, maybe this was along the lines of what Hanfield's thinking was, and maybe to a certain degree a much review view by Kate, but reasonable is the dinosaurs have to die out, is that it's the existing generation of procurement who is no longer defining it, but this new generation. So who is procurement? I think it's generation next and the values and the ideas and the concepts they're bringing to create this, 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 this greater vision and expanded role. Would you agree with that?
1: I think I would. I think I would. And, and I guess, um, you know, depending on exactly where you draw the line um, I'm either a member of or sitting right on the boundary of Generation X, um, and I think we want to keep you around. So I'm going to move you out of the dinosaur pile, and we'll, we'll hang on to you for a little bit.
0: So wait a second. Are you almost saying it's to a certain degree? Or are you saying to us when you say hang on, you're talking about the existing procurement professionals? So are you saying it's almost like a, a – uh, how do I say it? A safety net? <laughs> Is there a certain element of of, we we know the brave new world is over there. Uh, We know we have to cross that bridge, but we're not sure how stable the bridge is, so we're going to keep these people over here like a parachute. Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, I think some people need to be kept around. And I guess what I'm saying is is almost even more you-specific, that it's also possible to be a member of Generation Next. Um, And to say, you know what, we love our new ideas, but we also see some value in these folks that have gone before us. Not everything they represent and not everything they've done or how they've done it. Um, But we're going to keep some of those things around because we see value in them.
0: Got it. Well, there you go. So that who is procurement. And again, let's turn to the uh, listeners if there's any questions. And remember, this isn't a call-in show, although I wish it was because sometimes call-in shows are great. But are there any questions that anyone has before we move on to the next point here? Any observations? Do Kelly and I... Have a good grasp of this. Are we and and again, are we stimulating uh, some new thought in there, or are we just out to lunch? How about, how about if I just say that straight, Kelly? I mean, are we out to lunch? If you have a comment or question, you know, please post them or share them with Mark. Um, we'll move to the next one, I guess. Which would be uh, uh, if you could move to the next. Uh, has procurement finally comes of age? It sort of segues into this, doesn't it? What does it mean when you talk about coming of age? And and a mature perspective of position versus influence. What's the difference between position and influence? Why was this an important part of this chapter, Kelly?
1: So, we, you know, we talked about it a little bit, and I think if I had to boil the whole chapter down to one idea, it's this thought that there has been so much angst over the fact that procurement or the CPO role is not standard is not established in all companies of a certain size across all industries. And I think that's been a very difficult part or or a challenge that has needed to be overcome in terms of growing and improving the procurement identity. Um, And what we really kind of said in this chapter is that regardless of what the next step is, and this is one of the areas where we did disagree, Uh, regardless of what the next step is or should be, we need to let go of the fight for the CPO. That does not mean that we are letting go of the fight for advancement or more opportunity or increased responsibility or a higher level of strategic regard. Um, And that's, I think, where we got to this idea of working to build influence rather than rank. So as much as it's possible to have – you know, that really nice placard with the CPO tag sitting on the front of your desk, it is possible to have an empty title you're not actually able to do anything with it. In a way, it's a little bit like getting the title without the raise. In the long run, what good does that really do you? But influence, now that is something. You may not get that card for your desk, but if you're clever enough to build it, you're going to be clever enough to use it well. And you will benefit personally, your organization will benefit. Uh, We just have to be willing to look into less traditional channels to get that influence and build it and and ways of thinking about what we're actually gaining from each engagement. Does that make sense, John?
0: Well, yeah, I, you know, in a way, and, and I talked about uh, before you came on about the getting a seat at the executive table, which would imply influence, not just having a position and a seat at the table, but actually having influence. And in talking about it, I made reference, I think it was to Shiba, who uh, their, their former VP of supply chain uh, was promoted to the company's CEO, top spot. And remember we talked about that in an article where we're saying, is this, a, is this an exception to the rule or is this an example of what can be the first step towards uh, the procurement's role coming into play? Because remember, uh, Kelly, one of the things that, that, that's most important to note is that uh, procurement supply chain over the last couple of years in particular have become more strategic or viewed as being more strategic across the entire enterprise. It's no longer seen as an adjunct function of finance and merely buying and selling goods, but people are seeing the strategic advantage it can gain. The question is, is who's the best to have that influence or, or oversee it? And remember we talked about the CPO agenda roundtable from 2007, and although it's eight years ago, there still seems to be a certain amount of prevalence to this belief, is that the best person to run a procurement department is someone who doesn't have a procurement background. Remember that discussion?
1: I do remember that.
0: Now now again, eight years ago, I, have we progressed beyond that? I mean that's really the measurement from that conversation. Have we progressed beyond that? I mean one of the reasons why the executives and this was from uh, large uh, global corporations such as danon and, and, and other type companies one of the uh, one of the uh, issues they raised is is that and this was a comment they made i 'd rather have one strategic thinker than ten buyers. Um, and now, of course, when I looked at the buyers, I mean, in many ways, falling back into the profession, being limited by the natural uh, viewpoint of the industry as a whole or the company as a whole or organization as to what the role is, certainly was confining and fencing people in, as you want to call it, or we refer to in the book, but in reality, the strategic importance of supply chain has, has, has grown and been recognized and been elevated to the center stage, yet the professionals within that field are not keeping pace with that. So that would that's what I would call the influence gap. Is that you know now it's important. It's almost like saying we now recognize the importance of supply chain, strategic sourcing, all these elements and the direct impact they can have on our bottom line. And we're going beyond the Rutsky you know, observation, which was a powerful book in its time, but we just don't believe that the professionals have enough of the skill sets or prerequisite skill sets to be able to Become the the influencers to 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 manage that strategic uh, imperative properly and effectively. So you you have this disconnect between the profession and and its functionality, for lack of a better word. That I think is where the biggest gap is. That I believe is where the influence vacuum exists. What would you say to that?
1: Yeah, and, and I think one to go back to one of your your earlier points as part of this, you talked about procurement either being in fact or being regarded as an adjunct function of finance, I think that is a trajectory killer. Um, there is a significant portion of procurement organizations that report to finance, and I think while we might you know, not always have a choice, for one thing, um, but while we might see that as a way to get close to the executive table, it's sort of winning the battle but losing the war. Because I would say, why stop at that? I think being in procurement qualifies you to function as the chief executive officer. Forget about finance. And if that's part of our ambition, we actually have to look at the best path to getting to the CEO. And one of the statistics we cite in the book talks about what percent of the time do CFOs become CEOs and what percent of the time does someone in operations become the CEO? And the fact of the matter is you are ten times more likely to get to that top seat from operations than you are from finance. And one of the the new ways of looking at this I heard recently that I really like and I keep going back to, Laura Sassiri, who used to be at AMR Research and is now the, the head at Supply Chain Insights, she talked about what she called the buy, make, deliver team. And the idea of this is that she has aligned procurement with operations. And depending on what industry you're in, that could be R&D, it could be manufacturing, it could be production. Um, but the fact of the matter is you're more operationally aligned, which also then increases the likelihood that you not only move up to the COO role, um, but it brings that CEO role into more of a realistic Possibility, And I think it's keeping those ideas not necessarily accepting, yes, we should be part of finance, um, and, and part of that puts a burden on organizations. What level of potential are they willing to open up uh, to procurement teams? Because there needs to be some appetite for that in the C-suite. Um, but I think to the extent that we can align ourselves operationally rather than financially, um, there's a great deal of long-term advantage to be gained.
0: Okay, now does it help, and this is an interesting point, that the, the, the purchasing world, procurement world, uh, is, is, is not the only area of, of operation or practice within an enterprise going through a major transformation. For example, we talk on the book, the chief information officers, a survey they did of CIOs, found that the vast majority feel that they have to redefine their position. And in fact, went so far as to say we have to stop calling ourselves chief information officers, we have to take on a more what you call holistic uh, position and title uh, because we we can no longer be defined by that functional silo uh, in which we traditionally operate. And even to a certain degree, the finance office and, and CFOs, studies and surveys, are themselves going through a re-identification or an evolution, perhaps obviously not to the same degree as procurement is or, 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 or the uh, IT departments are. But certainly we have all key areas within the organization going through a transformation. Does that create a benefit or an advantage for the procurement professionals? In, in other words, if everyone's going through this reformation of who they are and reinvention of themselves, uh, does it not create an equal, equal starting point for everyone?
1: I think it does. I think it creates an opportunity. Um, of course, that only ultimately re- materializes as a return if you have someone who's willing to seize that opportunity. So, for instance, you, you mentioned IT. I think they're going through a tough evolution right now where in the past they've been all about managing uh, enterprise solutions, managing in-house hosted applications now we've moved through uh, bring your own device or BYOD where people are being allowed to access corporate solutions and, and things on their own device now security which was always part of IT role but probably a little bit more peripherally now security is the absolute heart of what they're trying to accomplish because the rest of the landscape has shifted and I think that same sort of progression, although I think we're on a slightly different point in the past, I think that same sort of progression exists within procurement <laughs> excuse me. And I think what it's actually probably going to be is it's going to have more to do with analytics um, than it does with some of the things that we've managed to. So everything is in fact shifting and it's shifting in response to things taking place outside of the organization. Um, we just have to be open to see it and have an instinct for what we should do in response to position ourselves well for the future.
0: Okay, but now here's an interesting point, and I talked about the relationships management officer, because and a it when you said outside of the enterprise or organization itself, you know, everyone talks about relationships, and, and you know, I, I was referring to the win-win and the ubiquity of that statement, which has almost lost all relevance and meaning, uh, because, you know, it seems to be as 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 unconsciously bandied about as good morning and how are you. I mean, people say that automatically. I don't, I, you know, I can't think of the last time somebody actually said how are you and then stopped to say, no, I really want to know. I mean, we say these things in passing and, and I, I, I align it with that. But when you look at the relationship management officer, is that potentially a new role within the enterprise that brings together the CFO, the CIO, the CPO, the external trading partners, and all of these factors, because let's face it, one of the greatest challenges we found with the procurement world internally is that they weren't very adept at managing their internal relationships, let alone their external relationships. The internal relationships were, were, were broken, and there there isn't a great deal of collaborative uh, Uh, exchange internally and if you can't do it internally you're certainly not going to be effective at doing it with external partners or stakeholders so you know there's been discussion about this you know uh, we talked about Kate Vitasics and and, you know her approach to building relationships and we'll touch on the the Minnesota bridge collapse and that amazing case study she did Andy the references to uh, the relational model and the new way of approaching things is there going to be on the horizon an RMO that will be a composite of all of these coming together?
1: You know, I think my perspective on that is it very much depends on what industry your company happens to be in and what role supplier happens to play. Um, You know, you may have everything from suppliers largely still being sort of indirect and tactical to being one of the organizations that Proxima Group talked about last year where we're talking about corporate virtualization, and companies are actually, they're not calling it outsourcing, but they're moving a greater amount of the responsibility over to their suppliers where relationships are critical.
0: So, in essence, managing relationships more and more, far more effectively, uh, both internally and externally, is really the key to all of this, isn't it?
1: I think it is, but I think it's going to have to be cross-functional. And as we talk about in our section on collaboration, collaborating isn't just a step you go ex- you go execute. It has to be a mindset and a way of thinking and something you believe in in order to be effective.
0: Okay, so this sort of segues nicely, and in, in, you know, uh, I think we've got an hour, so we've got twelve minutes left, so we'll talk faster. Um, but. If you look at this in in terms of the collaboration section and and the next point uh, that that, that, uh, we're covering, which is our Chapter 5, are win-win collaborations really possible? You know, when we talk about win-win collaborations, I mean, it really starts with what we've just talked about internally, doesn't it? I mean, are win-win collaborations possible? Are are, are we, uh, you know, or is it just like one of those sentiments that, gee, it's nice and we want it and we say it, but really we don't have a practical way to make it happen?
1: I mean, I think it's more about, I guess you could say it's about having a practical way to make it happen, but in a way, it's more about having a need to make it happen. Um, and, and one of the things on the collaborative front, you know, sometimes it's the, the exception that proves the rule. Um, I've been talking recently about the whole Suzuki Volkswagen failed collaboration. So while you can look at something like the I-35 bridge in Minnesota and say, it's amazing how all of these companies, even while meeting their own personal needs, manage to come together and work very well together. You can also have two companies where on paper it should look like they would have every reason to be successful functioning as partners, but there's a flaw in the mindset and the attitude and the perspective of the people in the lead positions on each side that are actually signing on the dotted line. So you can create a chief relationship officer, but I think suggesting that the relationship orientation can be contained to a role is going to ultimately limit its success. In a way, everyone needs to have relationship building and management very high on their list of drivers. They have to want it right across all the lead functions of the organization in order to actually make it happen.
0: Okay, so so again, we're going back to it's, it's an act of will, or is it circumstance? You touched on it, Let's talk about the bridge example. Um, sure. and, and Kate Batasic, I thought it was a great case study because it, 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 it provides an ideal example of how collaboration works at its best. You, of course, talked about the, uh, the Volkswagen Suzuki uh, example as collaboration at its worst. Uh, but even more so the potential scalability. And and for those who are unfamiliar, everybody knew, of course, I would imagine, about the bridge that collapsed in Minnesota. And what was compelling about Kate's story, and, and I got to sit in on one of her conferences when we were both speaking in Virginia last year, she talked about the fact that the Minnesota government procurement arm literally, I, I won't say abandoned, but set aside their normal procurement process because they were they were driven to build this bridge as quickly as possible, uh, not just because of infrastructural requirements and, 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 and the flow of traffic in the city, but to honor the people who lost their lives. They wanted to make this go faster than before, and what they did as necessity is they actually had a transparent work environment with their partners and stakeholders because they are attempting to build a bridge in a time frame that had never been done before, And and they put aside the risks, and they didn't have the same belt with suspenders terminology, and there seemed to be this give and take, where the ultimate goal of achieving the the, the final outcome, building the bridge within that time frame, honoring the the, the people who had lost their lives, became the priority. And when that became the priority, the results were incredibly successful, which leads one to wonder, why is it then, is it all circumstantial that will drive that? Is there like the stars having to line up right uh, to get people to truly collaborate to achieve a result that was amazing? Uh, or, Or... you know, and, and it's not really a scalable model because they, you know, it hasn't been replicated to the same degree in other areas. It seems like there are these, these pockets of incidences or circumstances where the right things come together with the right people and amazing results happen. But if it isn't scalable, then the question would be, why isn't it scalable? Why isn't collaboration such as what took place in Minnesota, Minnesota not scalable?
1: Yeah, no, and it's, it's definitely not scalable and it's not intended to be scalable. I Why? Think one of Well, one of the good ways to look at this, I think, is the difference between mass production and then the artisan creation of something. So if you are looking at an efficiency paradigm where you're in straight mass production and you are just chunking out these units as fast as you can and they're all uniform, There's very little subjectivity. There's very little reading that's required. And if anything, once I put it in place, you get to the point where any variability is actually a negative thing. It becomes a quality issue. It becomes an embedded flaw issue. I think when you have something that is as relationship-oriented, as true collaboration between separate organizations, you need to have people that are not trying to do it fast, They're not trying to say, how am I going to repeat this? They're saying, my goal is to make this situation work right now. And they're putting their focus and their energy and their attention into what do these circumstances require? How can we – and you don't have to be altruistic to make it work. You don't have to be willing to give away the bank or, or put your own organization's objectives as secondary. Those objectives need to align with the overall goal, but you need to have that person or that team of people leading the effort that are able to say right now is what matters, this process is what matters. At the end of the day, we're going to end up in the right place. But even if we take the same team of people and try to engage in another collaborative effort, those circumstances are going to be different, the other collaborative partners are going to be different, and so your approach has to be different. It can't be scaled.
0: All right, but wait a second, though. Wait a second, though. This is an interesting point, because traditionally, the, uh, the, and, and I'm not talking about the actual uh, functional elements of the Minnesota Bridge, Uh uh, project. What I'm talking about is the spirit behind it, the win-win collaboration behind it. I mean, you know, let's face it. We've talked about this before, and I've been very critical of the uh, Harris, Dr. Harris. You don't get what you deserve; you get what you negotiate. Mm-hmm. Mindset and the adversarial nature in which we all tend to 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 interact with suppliers. In in essence, what we do is we negotiate a contract based upon a static moment in time and an objective and then we use it to hold their feet to the fire. And, and, you know, Williamson talked about this. There's been many, many, many uh, references to this, that this legislation of performance rarely, if ever, produces the desired outcome. And so when I'm looking at the Minnesota example, I'm talking about a transparency, a matter of forming a working relationship that is adaptive to the realities of, of individual cases. I'm not saying it's the actual uh, because uh, every, every acquisition outside of, again, what you can call the, 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 commoditized type acquisition, every type of complex project or, or purchasing project has its unique attributes. And I mean, Tim Cummins a couple of years ago at a conference said that there's a large percentage of, of, of these kinds of agreements and contracts that are not, not delivering the expectations. I mean, can we not create the same spirit of transparency and collaboration in different circumstances. In other words, it's that transparency and, and ability to adapt. is showing the, 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 the adversarial point of, of legislating performance to one of collaborating on performance. Cannot that be applied? And is that not scalable?
1: I think that it can. And I'll just say, Mark, I am looking at my watch. I know we're drawing close here. Um, I think the thing that procurement in general can take away from this idea. Is to focus on outcomes rather than activities, and I think for more on that, we do look back to Kate. It's one of the, the key tenets of her of her best outsourcing sort of model, is that if you're looking to have something done in the very best way it can be done, you shouldn't tell someone else exactly how to do it. If you knew the very best way to do it, you should be doing it yourself in house. If you've hired someone else because they can either do it more efficiently, more effectively, uh, at a lower cost, you're acknowledging that they either have something you don't or they know something you don't. And so in any kind of contract, I think there's the possibility to build in the idea that as long as the supplier meets your requirements and gets you to the right kind of an outcome, the details of exactly how they get there, as long as they don't violate any of, again, those requirements, That's what you hired them to do. You have to let that variability exist. And from a procurement perspective, where this can sometimes cause trouble, is when we're sourcing, we're selecting a supplier to put a contract in place with, we are so focused on stacking out the services, the details, the descriptions of the items, that we forget about the outcome, where it's the outcome that needs to be apples and apples between the proposals not the path to that outcome across suppliers.
0: So within that context, win-win collaborations are possible, but we have to redefine what it means to be a win-win, and even more so what collaborations actually mean. I I, I guess at what point they start and what point. See, collaborations really, I think, are an ongoing process, and they don't hit a point of, of conclusion until the objective is achieved. And I think far too often with traditional contracting methods, any collaboration is ended once the contract is signed, because then it becomes a transfer of, 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 of responsibility, although I'd be more inclined to say an abdication of responsibility from buyer to vendor or supplier in that instance. And I think that's where the bridge has to occur, the change has to occur, is that collaborations extend beyond the contract itself, and that everybody has a responsibility and a role to play, especially given the reality that what, what what was contracted for now may change, circumstances may change, both on not only the buyer's side of requirements, uh, especially when you're dealing with future sourcing projects where there is no experience, but also when you go on the vendor side and capabilities of the vendor. I, I think those are the key factors that have to be addressed, and so that collaboration is, is something that, that is in, doesn't conclude until the project is done and everybody has an equal role and responsibility. That's the way I look at it. I just wonder if we're out of time. (laughs) Mark, are we out of time? Well, I would say since we started late, we can go a few minutes long. If people need to leave, they could just drop off. But uh, if you have some more points you want to get across, why not take the opportunity to do so? So where should we go next, Kelly? Mark, have any
1: questions come in?
0: Uh, Kelly, no, I don't have any questions. Okay. So, where should so we go next? Can
1: we take a couple minutes then and just hit chapter 9 really fast?
0: Yeah, like sure. We the could reader's do that. Version? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we talked about is the industry really being covered? Are we really, really getting the story of it? And, you know, let's face it, Kelly, there's been so many initiative failures. We're talking about e procurement initiative failures. We've been talking about the fact that, you know, it, it, no one's really talking about the emperor not having any clothes and how you and I, in this book, are, are the rebels in the industry, because we do go places that no one has ever gone before. You know, we've talked about, we've challenged uh, you know, what, 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 the sacred cows. Is that the right term, Kelly?
1: Sorry, John, is what the right term?
0: Sacred cows. Have We've challenged the sacred cows in the industry, yeah. haven't we? Yeah,
1: I think that's fair.
0: I mean, we've looked at organizations like Gardner and we said, what good is the magic quadrant, for example? What does it really mean, especially given that there are a high rate of e-procurement initiative failures? You know, we, we, we go into the corners and saying that, by and large, and let's look at the, the history going back, most of the blogs, most of the coverage has originated from the vendor voice. And we're not saying that the vendor's voice should no longer be heard or muted, but what we're saying is procurement professionals have to, Find their voice. They have to be part of the process of, of having information shared, uh, how the world really works, the challenges that are out there, the, the secrets that aren't being told. Uh, you know, I, I mean, that's really the key point of this chapter is, is that there are a lot of things going on that either by choice or by circumstance have, have remained silent, but have but, but it, been very difficult. I mean, when Gardner came up with the postmodern ERP era, you know, and they talked about the fact is is that ERP initiatives, uh, in which procurement was was, was e procurement solutions were spun off and, and used, uh, didn't work. Uh, well, I mean, in essence, though they were part of the the group that created that very era in the ERP world. Uh, so, you know, it just seems that there has been a mon- more monolithic voice in terms of the industry's coverage or a one sided view of the industry, and not a lot of challenges. And part of that we've talked about is the fact that procurement professionals in the past have remained silent or they don't ask questions or there's a degree of timidity of almost like an Oliver Twist, sir, can I please have more kind of approach. While this new generation next coming up, and and I I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but I think they're more militant, Kelly. The IBM study, for example, indicated that the up-and-coming generation next procurement professionals put greater value in the, the social responsibility of the companies for whom they're working. That there is something that they can feel are making a contribution, not just to their career, but to the industry as a whole. And as such, they have a low tolerance. Remember, I think you talked about, you know, and even the public, uh, punishing uh, companies whose supply base doesn't operate to the highest degree of integrity. And you can expand on that. These were things that five years ago were never thought of. Now they're being thought of. And I think that's, because of social medias, uh, that's because of social networking, that's because of, 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 of lights being shone in the darker corners that before went by silently. I mean, like, it, it, again, Kelly, maybe you want to expand on the fact of, of repercussions for companies whose supply chain is, is found to be questionable.
1: Yeah, sure. So this is actually another piece, uh, slightly more recent, maybe first quarter of this year, another piece of Costco Group research where they found out that not in Granted, this is primarily relegated to sort of a B2C type environment, that if your suppliers are involved in some kind of scandal, and it doesn't really matter if it's an accounting scandal or if it's a, uh, a labor standard scandal or an environmental problem, um, the, the customer base will exact their punishment on you. and that consumers are far more likely to pass along the word about a brand that has offended them or that they will no longer be loyal to than they are to pass along good news about a brand that they like or a product they're impressed by. And I think to the point about social media, as everyone in general, but certainly digital natives, people that are coming up that don't remember life without Facebook and and Twitter and all the different media sharing applications like Instagram and whatnot. If nothing else, everyone in general is becoming more vocal in some form. And I actually think that this is one of the huge potential wins for procurement. Um, I'm someone who has been a practitioner, I've been a consultant at a solution provider, and now I've gotten to be a blogger. And one of the things that I observe so frequently is just how little voice the practitioner community chooses to take that we would love to hear more. So many times you feel like it's one marketing person talking to another. Where everybody really needs to hear, whether they like the content of it or not, they need to hear from actual practitioners. What's important to you? What do you think the research means? What do you find interesting or applicable about what people are writing? And I would hope that one of the things that people would become more vocal about is about the media and the analysts that are covering the space. Um, Tell us if we're off-base. Tell us if objectives within an organization don't seem to align, where on the one side you're you're giving somebody an award and on the other side you're either saying that there's a problem with the solution or you're ignoring the problem with the solution. Uh, I don't think that's something that practitioners who deserve high regard and therefore valid coverage of the industry, should be willing to tolerate, and whether the response ends up being vocal in response saying, I have a problem with this, or I challenge this, or I question this, or explain this further, or whether that vocal response is something more action-oriented, like traffic gravitating from one site to another that provides the kind of coverage people would rather see. I would, I personally would love to see more of that from the field, and I think that's an extension of this idea of us being able to define ourselves as a profession, define our role within the organization, and really show the impact that we can have on the top and bottom lines.
0: Well, I see, and that's an interesting point. And and but knowledge is power, and the key point is maybe this is is what's happening is that with the advent of social media and groups on LinkedIn and and whatever, more people have been given a voice. And the the reliance upon the traditional sources of information have now been really called into question because of the reality of what's transpired, because of the high rate of e-procurement initiative failures, because of the challenges that were never discussed. Um, All of these factors come into play. So it's almost like it's at the crossroads of a new, more inquisitive generation who, is, as I said earlier, and I don't know if militant is the right word, but certainly proactively involved, uh, have greater demands and are much more savvy because of their ability to access and utilize the Internet. You have, again, the Internet and the people that are now offering information. And we always say this, is that, you know, anything you read anywhere, you know, in my blog, I mean, I've got about 23,000 followers for the blog. Uh, I always say uh, frequently, don't take my word for what you read. You ultimately have to take ownership and responsibility to verify what's being written by anyone. Um, and, and I think the generation next people are more inclined to, to do that, although I'm sure some of my generation may argue with that, rather than following on the same, same people. It, it's safe to say, that those traditional or early emerging <laughs> blogs and and, and, and other types sources of information uh, may be experiencing, uh, you know, a decline, much like TV, local television stations. Remember that study? They're saying, I mean, when TV first came out, and I don't want to date myself, but there were rabbit ears in three channels, and you'd watch a test pattern and get excited about it, and whatever shows came on, because the medium itself was new. Well, now blogging and the Internet and social networks aren't new. And that means that there are like satellite TVs, uh, you know, or fiber optics. You have hundreds of channels, on-demand channels, all kinds of things to access information. And all you need to do is have the willingness and the ability to access that, which, again, more so with Generation Next than, than the previous generation, means that, you know, there are more avenues to get information this, we believe, and we mentioned that, means that like the old procurement professionals that Kate referred to as the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs of the mediums uh, that, that went before were the early adopters, they're experiencing and will likely experience a shift away from them. I mean, how many people of this generation next will go to a Gartner, for example? I'm not picking a Gartner, but they're, they're one of the notable ones. How many of them will continue to go to Gartner and use them as a reliable reference source?
1: I mean, I think it's all going to depend on not only the the appetite for a certain kind of coverage, but I also think it's going to be I think formality is probably the wrong word. Sort of the perspective that the coverage offers. How static or dynamic does the information that the recommendations and ratings are based upon seem? Because that information and then the resulting recommendations or ratings, need to sort of move with the same pulse that things are changing. No longer are companies working to implement these enormous cumbersome systems that you wouldn't switch out after the fact, even if they were the worst solution on earth, because you're in, you're there, you live through it, and you just make do and move on. Wait, now wait, we clarify, that that well, Sorry,
0: clarify, clarify that again? Sorry, clarify that again? Say that again, sure. they wouldn't move on?
1: I think with with some of the, the massive, cumbersome ERP implementations of the past, I think you get to a place where it would have to be so bad in order to get a company to go through it again, to change providers, to move to a different solution. That condition doesn't exist so much anymore, at least in certain areas of the solution landscape. So where... Once upon a time, even something like an e-sourcing solution, by the time you got it in place, you'd fought so many adoption battles and so many customization hurdles. You'd say, you know what? I don't, I don't want to change. That was a nightmare. We've made it the best we can. Let's just stay. But it's not like that anymore. Things are cloud. Things are centrally hosted. It's much easier to switch. And not only that, there's far more integration between the platforms themselves. And it's all about decision-making changes and the way organizations look at the solution and think about them. The coverage of the solutions needs to undergo a similar change. So it doesn't make sense anymore to have this big sort of static-seeming overview that only comes out every 18 months, two years, three years, something like that. That's not going to be college enough information to actually help people. It needs to be on a regular basis as the news comes out. As things change, I think there's an expectation that things will be a lot more timely because decisions, not that things are going to turn on a dime, but decisions can be more responsive, decisions can be more timely, and that now includes the solutions that we're implementing across the enterprise.
0: Well, you see, now what's interesting about that is, and this is the thing, and I remember once being in Sweden, speaking in Stockholm uh, to VPs of a lot of major corporations there, and somebody from Capgemini came up to me, a senior executive, and said, you know, in the past we would think in terms of years, months and years. We now have to think in terms of weeks and days. Now, this was a couple of years ago. Um, And and he clarified that client expectations now are no longer – we will make this elongated investment in a one, two, three-year cycle with the hope of a payoff, especially seeing in most cases those payoffs never materialized. We have people now that can literally turn on solutions within, within a couple of days and measure the, and quantify the results without even having to, to, to integrate uh, within the existing ERP back end. I mean, back in, 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 in 1999, 2000, I remember meeting with an Oracle rep, and they said, we don't get out of bed for a million anything less than a million dollars, and we're working on this project for for, for, for uh, the D&D. And one of the interesting aspects of it is we said, well, we need to get this external solution. They referred to it negatively. I thought it was always a negative term as a bolt-on solution. And we've got to build this bridge to connect the two integration and it's going to cost eight hundred thousand dollars just to do that bridge. And so all of a sudden you have this barrier or or obstacles to look outside of the, the, the core implementation. <coughs> Sorry, nowadays what's happening is that you have these solutions that are quite independent, islands onto themselves, can achieve the results. You're no longer into this EDI world of only a handful can, 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 can engage in this costly transfer of information. It's even better than XML. You, you've, got, you've got the ability to capture data and share it, but you, you've got the ability to execute the job. Outside of a a monolithic initiative, I think that changes the coverage because, you know, you no longer have to to go through this analysis, nor is there that intimidation level that goes back to the days. Remember, you're talking to somebody who remembers the the, the punch cards and the the 8 inch floppies and uh, CPM before even MS-DOS came into the realms of operating systems. The reality is, is that now you can be up operational and check and test the veracity of a system in, in a matter of days than having to go through this elongated implementation process before you realize anything. And that changes the way in which you have to cover an industry. And I, and I think that that's really a factor of the maturation process, but the ability of, of traditional organizations and their business models have changed. You know, I mean, you, you don't pay uh, you know, like Gartner, you know, you know, when I talk to vendors, especially the up-and-coming vendors uh, going back five, six years ago, you know, you have to pay ten, twenty thousand dollars 20000 to get Gartner coverage, and Gartner was considered the gateway to credibility. Well, that isn't uh, considered anymore. You know, uh, you know, the magic quadrant is no longer considered to be the jewel of, of endorsement, like the good housekeeping seal that once was, because people have the greater capability. So I think you have this convergence of, of uh, Generation Next Professional coming in, new technology, new ways of communication, far more uh, instantaneous ability to measure and quantify results of, of an initiative uh, that, that in which the payment is based upon actual transactional throughput and results as opposed to anticipated benefit. I think these are all changing in, in, in the industry and not only is having an impact on the vendors who have the traditional models and the cost infrastructure associated with that, but it's changing the, 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 the cost model and the business models for the blogs and everyone else. I, and, and that's really where the, 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 the biggest uh, area is coming in in terms of being covered. You no longer have the revenue streams based on the traditional model that can sustain your existing business model, and you have to change and adapt to it. I mean, I don't know if you'd agree with that, I and mean, we've talked about this, but what are your thoughts, Kelly? And we'll give you the final five.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, just as we kind of wrap here, to kind of pull everything back together, you know, we called the book Procurement at a Crossroads. And in some ways, I think maybe even for us from the outset, the thinking was we're looking at procurement at their own crossroads. But I think what we're really saying is that there's change in all of the functions, there's change throughout the organization, there's change in solutions. And that at the end of the day, procurement is just one group and one set of people standing at a much larger crossroads. In fact, everybody is kind of at a crossroads right now. But we can only really control us and all of our individual choices. And hopefully today we've given people some things to think about. All of our individual choices ultimately roll up into a collective movement. And that is what is ultimately going to determine where the field and where the profession go in the future.
0: Well, I think, that, and let, let's list again, the book that, that Kelly and I have, have written and it will be available in November, we're hoping it's called Procurement at the Crossroads, Career Impacting Insights into a Rapidly Changing Industry. The cover you've seen on the PowerPoint, uh, first slide, you know, right is transition, left is turmoil. Uh, I, I I think hopefully this is giving you a perspective, not only what's in the book, but and it's only just a piece of it, but the areas we go in and the debates and the thoughts that we try to provoke people to take in an industry that is, is, is very exciting and I think is is coming to a certain degree into its own. So, Mark, we'll turn it back to you. Uh, any thoughts or comments on your end? Well, thank you, John. Um, now, in other words, pretty uh, far past the hour. I did get a question from Robert, but I, I, I will forward that to you offline. I think it'll make a great blog or, or maybe even a topic of a future call um, but I think we're good for right now.